This is Dennis Romani. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, Ira Israel. Uh, Ira has studied philosophy, religion, psychology. He is a licensed counselor and psychotherapist, and he is the author of the book, his latest book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now that You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. Ira, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you very much, Dennis and Phil. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Ira, um, for the sake of our listeners, before we start talking about your new book uh, specifically, tell us a little bit about you and uh, since uh, our show is about spirituality, um, your spiritual background, how you came to whatever path you're on. Um, in 1985, I was 18 years old, there was a bad car accident, I was in the passenger seat, and it set me on a journey that I didn't know I was going on at the time, but I ended up studying uh, with the University of Pennsylvania, I ended up studying philosophy, and then moving to Paris and studying literature and film, music and art, and uh, about eight years later, in 94, I was in Thailand, and I cracked my head on a door, and a woman healed me with her hand, and all of a sudden, in a moment, I realized that all of Western philosophy could be misguided in some ways. And so um, I started studying Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, mindfulness, yoga, and that led me to UCSB, where I studied uh, in the Religious Studies Department uh, the history of Hinduism and Buddhism. And then, we should um, just specify UCSB is University of California, Santa Barbara. Correct. And, um, and then about eight years later, um, I was practicing yoga and I did a teacher training and meditating and things like that. And I got into a very seriously dysfunctional relationship and that got me studying psychology. So the way I see my life is that for 25 years, if you looked at me living in Paris or wherever I was uh, traveling around the world, you would have said, oh, he's lost. He's one of those seekers, one of those lost souls sitting around in ashrams and doing odd things. And then all of a sudden I was teaching um, yoga at Rodney Yee studio in Oakland. And a woman came into my class and she put her hands down on the mat and I watched her back open up and I heard a voice really. And it just said, it's time to give back. It's time to teach. And so um, for the past, that was 2009. So for the past uh, eight years, uh, nine years, I've been making the mindfulness DVDs and teaching at Esalen. And um, yeah, just I, I, it was it was very uh, interesting how I found um, just what I should be doing. My Great. Calling. I, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I, I watched a uh, talk that you gave on YouTube, and uh, you were discussing uh, your accident and uh, some mm -hmm. therapy or whatever you went. Uh, uh, you went through afterwards, and you had a partner in the that paired up with a person in the therapy to deconstruct your experience. And you said that you were uh, you were almost killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you put it. And then the mm -hmm. person that was deconstructing deconstructing your experience for you said, "No, you weren't almost killed in a car accident. You are a person that was in a car accident." I, I hope I got that right. I may be getting the, but, the hey, verbiage slightly wrong. Explain that to me, the differentiation. Explain it to our listeners. I found it fascinating. So um, Jacques Lacan said, language thinks me. 
And what I teach in my classes is that language is a trap. Language is a cage. And what I'm interested in is consciousness. And that's what I learned from uh, studying with Alan Wallace at UCSC, um, just how the mind operates, the, the limitations of human consciousness. So in that talk, um, yeah, after 25 years, I took a course and um, people, the course was to deconstruct the story of your life. And I was saying I was almost killed in a car accident. I have a very large scar on my face. And so people have been coming up to me, you know, in cafes and bars for 25 years saying, how'd you get that scar? What happened to your face? And I would say I was almost killed in a car accident. So when I was taking this class, I told that part of my life. And I said I was almost killed in a car accident. The guy said, no, you weren't. You know, you were in a car accident. There was a car accident. Everything else you added. <laughs> so the, the way we construct the narratives of our lives you know, it either enrolls people in our victimhood or our hero-ness or, or just our way of being in the world. So um, it really, you know, in one second, the, the way I was framing up my life and who I was was changed. Fascinating. Um, Ira, your new book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. Um, okay, I have a specific question, but, for, you know, let's to speak more generally, what brought you to write that book and come up with the title? I noticed two epidemics in our society, one of depression and the other of anxiety. And as I say in the book, I don't think that there's some rogue gene that's plaguing Americans in particular that caused 23 million of us to take antidepressants every morning. You know, let's take a look at capitalism. Let's take a look at the myth of romantic love. Let's take a look at science. Let's take a look at the pressure in our school system. Let's take a look at all the things that we consider to be normal and see if there are um, unwitting ramifications of all the stresses and pressures, the way we individuate when we're young, the way we become adults, the way we, we take on $26,000 at uh, an average to go to university, $222,000 in debt to uh, the average mortgage, the average credit card. But what, is, what are these stresses what that you know, causes everybody to think that they're crazy busy and yet there's very few of us who are actually like curing leukemia. And yet everyone's stressed out. Interesting. So, so you, you, you are in, in the course of your book, uh, you, are, uh, you obviously go into that. And why the uh, emphasis on surviving the childhood? Is it, is it uh, what we learned in our childhood that uh, makes us uh, have this anxiety and depression? Absolutely. Um, you know, no child was born with a voice in its head. I'm, I'm terrible at this. I'm, I'll never amount to anything. I'm bad at relationships. And so all these things, I think, are learned. Uh, I, I'm not I'm a big um, proponent of uh, nurture, not nature, that our culture is really causing these problems. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's a very, I think that that's a very empowering um, uh, way of thinking. I mean, on my first DVD, I say depression relates to thoughts about the past. Anxiety relates to thoughts about the future. The past no longer exists. The only thing that exists about the past is your story and the future doesn't yet exist. The only thing that exists about the future are your expectations. So how can depression and anxiety exist? And for me, be, realizing that I'm the cause of my suffering, that I'm the cause, if I'm the cause of my depression and anxiety, my suffering, then I can be the solution. And so I think that's a, it's a very empowering, uh, empowering way to, to see, you know, um, reality. 
Ira, the uh, subtitle, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, um, is a path to authenticity and awakening, and you, you ref- use the phrase authentic self. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by the authentic self? Mm-hmm. What does authenticity mm-hmm. mean? The first six chapters of the book deconstruct authenticity, and I, and I hope that uh, you guys and the readers find it humorous because, um, you know, we have a lot of... Uh, misunderstandings of what's authentic in our culture. And then the end of the book reconstructs it as attachment, atonement, attunement, presence, and congruence. And I can go into them a little bit if you want. Is that okay? Sure, sure, sure. So I I think that attachment theory is super important. Um, Being aware of our primary attachment dynamics, and I'll just go to the future and then then, then we got to work backwards. So there was a quote I heard by Harville Hendricks on the uh, CD or the tape called uh, Marriage is the Path to Wholeness. And he says that the subconscious purpose of marriage in America is to enable us to complete our childhood. Our parents had deficits. Those deficits wounded us. Those wounds became defense mechanisms, and those defense mechanisms became our personalities. And we'll always be attracted to people who can replicate the dynamics from our primary caregivers. So for me, you know, as a psychotherapist, I really think that our understanding of reality, our perspective, our paradigm is formed pre-verbally. Um, we either believe that the world is a secure place and abundant, or we have a scarcity mentality and we think that if we turn our backs, you know, we, people will, will screw us in some way. So I focus on attachment theory as a part of authenticity because we have to be aware of our own way of being in the world. The second part is atonement or at one and that's releasing our resentment about things we can't change. So our mind was built to create grievance stories, to create woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't, and it takes them from the past and projects them into the future because I believe its primary goal is to try to stave off potential future traumas. Growing up at any place is very traumatic. The whole individuation process is extremely traumatizing. And things happen to us when we're six and ten, and our mind says, wow, that was so humiliating. I am never going to let that happen again. I need to lift weights. I need to become the smartest guy in the room. I need to become rich. I need to become sexy. I need to do this or that. And all these things that shaped our way of being when we were six and ten and fifteen are fantastic because they helped us survive our childhood and get our emotional and psychological needs met the best we could as children. However, those defense mechanisms, now that we're 40, 50, or 60, are probably hindering us from getting the love that we really crave, the authentic love. So atonement and cleaning up the past, and I frame this in the book by quoting Lily Tomlin, who says, forgiveness means giving up all hope of having a better past. So, mm-hmm. again, how, that, that video you watched was called How to Own Your Life. So, if you can't, you know, if you walked into your home tonight and saw your, your wife or your child sitting on the couch trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, you would stop him or her. And yet, this is what your mind is doing all day long. It's trying to make the path different or better. So, what I'm saying is um, forgive everybody because it's, there's no plan B. Uh, so atonement is just cleaning up your past so that you can show up authentically for the present. The third component is attunement. And in the book, I say things like mirror neurons don't fire via text message. And one hug equals one million Facebook likes. <laughs> so we live in this crazy society where we delude ourselves into thinking that we're connecting with other human beings. 
But what we really need is hugs. What we really need is to throw a Frisbee. We need to take a walk on the beach. We need to drink coffee in a cafe and chat with people and, and have their faces, their eyeballs with us. Mm-hmm. And, and that, because that's, that's the way by other people's empathy and by being empathetic, we develop those relationships. So attunement is a, is a core component of being authentic, being able to be present with another person. And then the fourth part is presence which is not letting our minds drag us into the past or drag us into the future. And for me, the tools for uh, attaining presence are uh, yoga and meditation. And then the fourth part, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, the fifth part is congruence. And so we live in this incredibly privileged society. And again, 23 million people uh, every day take antidepressants. Um, And we don't understand how luxurious our lives are. You know, 2.5 billion people live on less than $1.90 a day. Most Mm -hmm. people who have walked planet Earth never reach the age of 40 years old. You know, we live in the most um, wonderful society with the greatest safeties and freedoms in the history of humanity. And we have these epidemics of depression and anxiety. So congruence is understanding that we have to, we're not running from lions and tigers and dinosaurs. We're not having bombs dumped off on our head. So we have the ability to decide who we want to be and the type of lives we want to lead. And then we have to have the tools to be that person. And, you know, I start the book by quoting Andre Gide, who said, it is better to be hated for who you are than to be loved for who you are not. Hmm. So we develop these false selves as children. And, you know, we can't say, oh, yeah, you know, I, it's terrible that I became this or that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying accept who you are, be thankful for your every second of your life hitherto. And, you know, moving forward, there might be some tweaks or hacks to uh, help you gain what you really want in this lifetime, which is love. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to ask you, I, I was, is fascinating to me that on the one hand, I mean, you studied at the University of Pennsylvania, University of California, Santa Barbara, you have had a very rigorous academic training. And what you're saying here uh, is very well thought through. And there's an intellectual construct that supports uh, what you're saying. And, and, and I follow it and, and I actually support it. Um, on the other hand, uh, when, I, I wanted to go back. When you were in, in uh, Thailand, you became f- fascinated with Buddhism and yoga and meditation. Uh, is that approach... Can you get to the same place without having all the intellectual understanding that you're laying out here and just experientially through meditation, through, through Buddhist uh, teaching? And, and I'm not thinking in terms of Buddhist texts, uh, Buddhist teachings, in, in terms of experiential technologies to develop the inner self. Can one arrive at the place you want and think people should arrive at uh, in a way that doesn't involve all the... Uh, the, the intellectual construct that uh, you are providing. Hey, does that make sense, the question? Yeah. Yeah. The quite, I mean, the answer is very simple, and you know what it is. Uh, yeah. One mountain, many paths. Right. I mean, I, I, I actually feel, I feel embarrassed that it took me so long to realize these things. But I grew up in a middle-class Jewish household in the suburbs of Connecticut. I was never exposed to any of these things that are just... Um, uh, ubiquitous in California. And, you know, it was just, you know, you were just taught to become a lawyer and doctor and the second Hitler might come. So you have to, you know, be prepared <laughs> you have to be prepared for that. Right. And so, I, I mean, I just grew up at, you know, everybody was just like, make money, make money, make money, and you'll be happy. And all my peers, 
who I'm not going to, well, I, that's a terrible thing to say. A lot of my peers who are multimillionaires are not the happiest people in the world. Right. And so, you know, we, we <laughs> live in a society where um, uh, pop culture teaches us things through uh, songs, through uh, television shows and films that, you know, if you become wealthy, then you will attract a beautiful, sexy spouse and you will have kids and that you'll watch them flourish and it won't be too expensive to send them to college and you'll live a good life and take Hawaiian vacations and do cool things. And that's, you know, <laughs> that would be lovely if that fairy tale was true. But I know a lot of people who are very seriously in debt, uh, even if they're multimillionaires and, um, and their kids are in rehab and, uh, and, and, or, or, or don't speak to them. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't work out like it does in the movies. This is the lesson that uh, has to be repeatedly learned of each uh, generation. Right, right. Right, right. And, and, and these stories that you tell about what people are going through, I mean, we laugh, but it, I, we hear, we all, I think we all hear these stories every day from friends and family and associates that all the hell that they're going through. And, uh, and uh, you know, this is, well, yeah. It's the first noble truth, so it's been going yeah. on for a long time. But I, I think, actually, if you look at our school system, which was developed to make factory workers, and, and this, uh, you know, the, the, if you look at the DSM, the... Explain what the DSM is. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders. It, there's, there's, no, there's no definition of wellness in America. Mm. All the mm -hmm. definitions of unwellness mean that you can't show up for your job. And I think that that's seriously messed up. If, you, if our... <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're Barama, I always felt wellness, better when I didn't show up. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I say in the book, I say in the book, if your friend called you up and said, I've been lying in bed, eating licorice and watching reality television for two weeks, you would say, what's wrong with you? You know, because you're, you're, we're built to work. And if two men meet in the bar, the first three questions they ask each other is, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And we're obsessed with how people make money in this culture. And, you know, We'll see what happens. If the stock market crashes and goes to zero and we're all either trading Bitcoin or seeds or ammunition or whatever <laughs> we have to do, whatever, before the next society comes. I mean, in the book, I say nobody, nobody ever went to a feudal lord 500 years ago and said, you know, someday there's gonna, you, know, you won't have to surf and you won't have to protect them. There's going to be currency and they're going to go to a factory. You know, we don't know what the future reality right. is. But when people look back on our society, in 500 years, and they see things like root canals and asphalt and iPhones, they're going to think we're, we are cavemen. <laughs> well, we may be cavemen if uh, things go in the wrong direction. <laughs> some, of us, some of us would be quite comfortable in a cave, actually. Um, Ira, um, <laughs> the uh, other part of your uh, subtitle is uh, Awakening. Tell us what you mean by that term. Sure. I don't think that there's a permanent state of enlightenment, so I avoid that word at any cost. Um, I think that we get glimpses. Uh, you know, we, we can taste the nectar. Uh, you know, I espouse it by the Vedanta. So um, the tools of yoga and meditation were devised and designed 
to um, help us transcend Maya, which is everything that we process in our in our five senses and our mind chunks together. So we get glimpses uh, of of Brahman, or you know that Atman is really Brahman through the tools of meditation and yoga. And that's what I mean by awakening. I mean the Buddha. Buddha just means the awakened one. So you know, living your life at a raised level of consciousness, so that. You know, we're very myopic as a species. Like when I teach classes, I'll always say, you know, we're all going to get on the highway tonight or tomorrow, and someone's going to cut us off, and we're going to, a lot of us, if you were raised like me, you're going to hurl obscenities. And this, we have a lot of maladaptive behaviors because we're so myopic as a species. So what I teach people is, you know, what do you want to say on your tombstone? Do you want it to say wealthiest person in the cemetery? Do you want to say had a, a, a IPO? You know, do you want to say vacationed in St. Bart's? You know, you want to say any sane person wants it to say beloved on their tombstone, loving husband, loving father, loving wife, loving daughter. And yet, you know, throughout our daily activities, a lot of us don't embody that spirit of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, obviously from the title of your book, How to Survive Your Childhood, uh, now that you're an adult, that obviously people have had problems with their childhood. So somebody comes to you, maybe you have a nephew, somebody, family member, and they said, hey, look, Ira, uh, Uncle Ira, I just had a kid, and uh, I don't want them to grow up and think I survived my childhood. I want them, I want, want them to grow up and think I had a wonderful childhood, which is giving me a happy life as an adult. What, what advice would you give to, to, to that nephew? Well, I state in the book that parenting is the most difficult job in the world. There's no, you know, what we're trying to do, it's fascinating. So Jacques Lacan wrote in 34, it was actually published in 49, uh, the stage of the mirror, the mirror stage. So when you hold a baby up to a mirror, it can't see itself. Uh, and then there's the individuation process from six to 18 months where the baby starts to recognize that it's not its mother. It's not at one with the mother's breath. So that process in our culture is very abrupt. If you go to Tibet or what we consider to be third world countries, women walk around with their babies in satchels, breastfeeding and sleeping with them for four or five years, which we consider to be completely uncivilized in our, in our you know, very sophisticated society. So during the individuation process, when the child is gaining a sense of self, what the parent is trying to do is instill um, self-discipline in them so that they can uh, monitor themselves and regulate themselves and, and interact with other people. And so for me, um, you know, there's no, I don't, I, I'm not a parent. So that's it, it, it's probably obvious from the book that I'm not a parent, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but but, but theoretically, you know, I understand what parents are trying to do and why some children, you know, feel like if their father was aloof or their mother was enabling or, you know, the, the way the child's brain becomes um, an adult brain, uh, you know, that process is, is very difficult. So to answer your question, um, I think parents, you know, it's this fine line, this razor's edge that they have to walk of, of loving their children and instilling confidence in them, but also instilling self-discipline in a way that the child doesn't receive it as, oh, there's something wrong with me, because mm-hmm. that's the problem. The, the, the problem is that the children are Copernican, and they believe that the universe center is, revolves around them. So that means that if the mother has a migraine or the dog gets hit by a car and the child's six years old, the children often assimilate that as, 
there's something wrong with me. And, and, and so, you know, parents have to be very aware, I think, of how the, the their children's mind is forming. And, and you know, um, I don't know, uh, just uh, work with specialists and, and, and try to find uh, the way to be the most uh, loving and to raise their children in a way so that they, they're, they're well adapted. Ira, um, we talked before about the authentic self and authenticity. Um, suppose a person aspires to live a more authentic life and to realize the uh, authentic self. How do they know they are? Is there, can you be inauthentic about being authentic? It's, a, it's a such a great question. And, I, you know, I'm always waiting for someone to throw a monkey wrench in my intellectual engine by raising their hand in one of my classes and say, well, well, I think Hitler was very authentic. I mean, he was misguided cut to us, but to him, he was authentic. So I understand what you're saying. So to me, the word vocation is the most important thing. So vo- voco in Latin obviously means calling. And it turns out with all the studies of happiness that Sonia Lubomirsky and other people have done, that people who do things for money are miserable. And the only people who are really happy are the people who follow their calling. So for me, and again, we, we all know this, meditation and yoga are a way to clean out the, the mishigas, the clutter that your mind does, so that you can hear what the universe is telling you. So Joseph Campbell reframed it, obviously, as um, follow your bliss. And, you know, obviously your bliss could misguide you, but we're, we're hoping that, um, you know, we learn how to co-create our life with spirit, with God, with whatever we believe in as our higher self, and that, the, you know, the universe is uh, giving us um, information that will help us thrive and help us help the world thrive. Uh, uh, Ira, in, in your uh, next book, uh, Where You Go From Here, uh, will you stay on the same theme, uh, uh, or are there new areas that you want to go into? Again, um, you know, the limitations of consciousness have not, uh, philosophers have been talking about this for aeons. So that what I, I, I'm studying right now, and I'm taking classes at UCLA in psychology and philosophy, literary theory, and because I, I you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated by how the world has become the way it is and all the things that we consider to be normal right now. You know, I, I'll, I'll make jokes in the classes. I think I'm making the joke. I say in the book, I say <laughs> marriage for life was a fantastic idea in the 13th century when we lived till 28, but now <laughs> marriage for life, marriage for life in a society where we're living till 87, not such a good idea. I mean, it's quite obvious. We should have, we should have renewable marriage contracts, mm-hmm. you know, by the same token, we should all be voting by our telephones. You know, we won't live in a democracy until we abolish the, the electoral college, until there's no such thing as Democrats and Republicans, and that we all vote by referendum. It's, it's super simple. And we have the technology to do all these things. So, you know, what I, the way I frame this conversation, and this is from uh, what I learned from Philip Reef at the University of Pennsylvania, there's conservatives that are trying to conserve the white male hegemony, predominantly Judeo-Christian, Donald Trump, John Boehner, um, Dick Cheney. And because, you know, as I, the whole book, if you want to frame it in a couple of words, is just the power corrupts. So we used to have um, laws, regulations, and rules in our society that, that you know, kept us uh, more um, 
civilized in some way. And then starting with Ronald Reagan, you know, everything becomes deregulated. And we, what we've seen in our society is this incredible disparity. So people like us, we're progressives. And, you know, it's scary. We don't know what the future is going to bring. We don't know whether our culture uh, ends with a bang or a whimper. You know, I always thought that, um, I'm not, I don't know how polemical this will be, but I always thought that Barack Obama was like our Dalai Lama, that he could help us, like, get us to the next, whatever's going to be the next uh, way that we interact with people besides uh, the incredibly competitive nature of capitalism. I thought, you know, we needed a leader like the Dalai Lama or somebody to teach us that money does not bring happiness and hoarding, you know, it's really what we've learned from all the studies is that giving and being of service to others, those are the most important things. Those are not taught in our school system. Well, I mean, they're taught a little bit more than now than they were 40 years ago when I was in school. But still, I mean, if you look at the competitive nature of capitalism and the fear that we consider to be normal, that we live in, with our doors locked, with our alarm systems, where our police, you know, I almost had to cancel the interview because there was a helicopter going over my house right now. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. I know I, the I, feeling. I almost, I almost have to call you guys and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this interview. There's a helicopter right above my house. But obviously, they shot the perpetrator or they <laughs> captured this person. Uh, and so I, we can have our interview. But that's not, that's not normal. That's not cool. I mean, like, that, that I'm looking out my window at, a, you know, at 7 o'clock on a, on a Wednesday evening and I'm thinking, oh, I better duck because, you know, it's very now, strange. Ira, are you, are you suggesting that our current leadership does not embody <laughs> generosity and uh, kindness and non-materiality? Well, uh, I think it was Eric Trump, I guess the son confused, went on uh, the television the other day and said, the only color, my, my father's not racist, the only color he knows is green. And so, <laughs> you know, money, money is really, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really interesting how money has shaped our consciousness. And I don't know, uh, Phil might um, understand this uh, a little bit more, but what I find this thing that goes on in Los Angeles I call it hovering. When you meet people, you know, they kind of sniff around like dogs uh, sniff each other, and they're trying to find out how you can help their career. <laughs> right, so, right, can right. Can you help them get a book deal? Right. Can you help them get a movie deal? Can you help them teach at Esplanade? Can you help them do this? And so I'm always curious as to the first couple of questions people ask, like, you know, it's very, it's, it's fascinating to me what's prioritized here in Los Angeles in terms of material possessions and the, the cool places you, uh, you vacation and the powerful people you know. And, you know, it's really, it keeps down to, to every level of society, and it's, it's incredibly toxic. Right. I, I have one final question for you, and that is, are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future? Hmm. You know, I, I'm going <laughs> to... I think, I, think I, I mean, I, in my mind, I'm realistic. Um, I think that there's going to be uh, a hemorrhaging, and it could, you see, the, the problem in America is that we've all become so complacent with, you know, where flat screen televisions and our quality of life that we're not ready to march in the streets. I mean, there's a, there's a line in the book that's very poignant, and I say, if there's, if, if there's nothing worth dying for, is there anything worth living for? And I think we lost after the Vietnam War that, that 
real ability to, to protest. I mean, the, the Women's March, Women's March last week was fantastic. The Me Too movement is, is a wonderful thing. We need to have a complete um, reshaping of our society. We need to understand, we need a new revisioning of gender roles. We need to, you know, reframe everything, all of our interactions, because, I mean, the whole system, you know, there are a lot of benefits of the Internet. But, you know, uh, three days ago, I got an email from Huffington Post saying that they've eliminated yes. blogging. Yes. Now, that, that's a fascinating thing because I, I think that, I mean, now I'm going to go off the deep end, but I think that people will look back on blogging in 300 years the way you and I look back on slavery. I mean, there is hundreds of thousands of people who sit around writing all day long for free in the hope of getting discovered or some sort of promotion or somebody takes it up and puts it on, they tweet it or do this thing. And all of these, uh, these interactions are really kind of inauthentic in a way because there's, there's, there's another agenda behind all of these things, the way we're interacting with each other. So, you know, um, I don't know if it's optimistic or pessimistic. I think we should be, I think we, I mean, I tell people to expect the unexpected, meaning that if you walked up to any human being in New York City, on uh, September 10th, 2001, and said, to, I was there, and they said, and someone asked me, what are the chances of the World Trade Center, those two buildings, not being there at the end of, of your life, Ira? I would have said zero. The chance is zero. And I would have been wrong. So we, we need to, you know, whether it's uh, climate change, the floods in Montecito were totally surreal, or the, the mudslides. I mean, that kind of thing, whether it's a tsunami, whether it's a, uh, some kind of bovine plague, some kind of, you know, what, we, what we've done to the earth is horrifying. You know, the, 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 that um, primacy of our, of humanity saying, oh, we're better than animals, so we can kill one billion, two billion pigs, one billion cows every year. We can, you know, we can, we can do all these things to the earth. We can pave it over. We can do this and that and frack. You know, we really need to uh, become one or more harmonious with each other and with our planet. And would that come from people becoming more authentic and surviving 100%. their childhood yeah. better? Yes? Yeah. You got, it, you got a few seconds to sum it up. Because our mind creates resentment. It wants things in our past to be different. And what we have to do is just accept who we are and then look towards being the change we want to be in the world and making our, you know, we have to, we have to just be of service to other human beings and be of service to the planet instead of trying to enlarge our bank account. Well, I think we could close with that, don't you, Dan? Well, yes, well put. Uh, Ira, thank you so very much. And again, the, the book... The book it's easy for us, easy for us to say right. with this non-monetized uh, podcast. Right. <laughs> Which we're trying to monetize. So if you have any thoughts out there, tune in. Any powerful people you can introduce us to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> any angles on it. Uh, but the, the book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, uh, Ira, thank you so very much for your time. It was a lot of fun and uh, very insightful, and I, I hope you can come back on again sometime. Thank you very much, Dennis and Bill. It's been a pleasure. Okay, see you around uh, L.A. Uh,